The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. What do you hope to accomplish in your life? For some of you, the moment you came out of the womb, you, ha- you knew that answer, right? Like, the doctor's like, oh, instantly, we know exactly what this is going to need to be. For Heather visiting you, you can't imagine what you're trying to accomplish after church today. Like, you don't even know where you're going to eat. So the thought of trying to answer that question is daunting. It's, it's downright scary because that is so big and, and so profound. But whatever camp you lay in, whatever side of that you are, the truth is every stage of life, that question is asked to us. Right, in, in elementary school really starts, we have people start showing up to school for career day, trying to give us a vision of what we should look towards our future. And, and what our hopes and dreams are and maybe what we were designed for. And then as we get into junior high and in high school, that question gets intensified. As you start to get to the end of your high school career and you have to make the choice, are you going to go to the work field? Are you going to go to college? Are you going to trade school? Or are you just going to join straight into your career? And then from there, the question is still asked, but it just looks a little different. This time, instead of asking, what are you trying to accomplish in your life? It's what's your five-year, 10-year, 15-year, 20-year plan? What's your goal? It's still the same question. It just looks a little different. And then as you get into your career, you start making that question is still there. And then towards the end of your career, it changes a little bit again to what's the legacy you're going to leave behind? This question is asked throughout our life and, and often can lead into our relationship with God. In my many years of being in a ministry, I've heard more people ask that question about their relationship with Christ. What's God's will for my life? And what I tell each and every one of them is what I would tell you the same today is, as hard as it may seem, Scripture doesn't show us a five-year, a 10-year, a 15-year, or a 20-year plan. No one in Scripture actually gets that. But what they get is so much more beautiful and so much more powerful. Promise, a promise that God says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. That I will be your comfort and that I will be your guide. That promise is so much better than a five-year, a 10-year, a 15-year plan. But the hardship about that promise is that I have to be more dependent. See, it's easier to follow a 15-year plan or or, or 20-year plan. It's a lot harder to just rely every day and every moment. See, what those promises teach us is that God is calling us to be more sensitive to the here and now than being frozen into the future. See, God calls us to be more present and to be more observant and to be more here in the now. And that's what I hope to to share with us today as we dive into this text. And so if you have your Bibles or it's in the pamphlets that you got out, uh, you can read with me. It's in Acts chapter 17. Now, we got a lot of verses here, so 
<laughs> come for the ride. <laughs> uh, it says this, uh, Acts 17, verse, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned with, in the synagogue with the Jews and then devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So the Epicurean and Stoic philosopher also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign deities because he's preaching, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Erebus, saying, may we know what this new teacher is, teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athens and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Erebus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with the encryption to the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope, that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each other, from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, for we indeed, his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he has commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in, high, in, in righteousness by a man whom he had appointed. And of this he had given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear about this again. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Others whom were among them, Dionysus the Arabit, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. Try for a moment to imagine what it would have been like to be Paul. Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey. He is going from place to place to place, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And and in this journey, he has seen truly tremendous things. But at the same time, he's also experienced some significant and weighty hardships. Like in this journey, he's come to cities and watched God through him have demon-possessed girl be freed and healed. He's seen a a Roman who would never um, accept Jesus as Lord save himself because of the power of God from breaking the chains 
of his jail cell. And at the same time, he was thrown in jail. And he was also rioted out of two different cities. And so where we actually pick up this text is in, Paul is on the run. He's on the run again because this is the second time now that he has been forced out of his city because of the things that he has shared, the truth of Christ. And he gets to Athens, which is a very beautiful place then, just as much as it would have been a beautiful place today. And when you're going through a hardship and you're facing hard times, how many of us want to just take a break, just relax, take a breath? Like no one would have would have like faulted Paul for trying to find a chair and go sit up on the corner. Just, just take a breath and say, wow, man, this has been hard. This, is, this has been a journey I wasn't expecting. This was difficult, especially when it says right above this in verse 15 that the plan was for his missionary partners to be joining him in the journey. For many of us, we would assume that, at least I would have wanted, to take a breath. Now, before I get too farther in this, let me be clear about something. Here in America, I think we don't know how to rest. And we force ourselves to burn out too often because we aren't taking the time we need to truly rest. But what, we need, what I think we're missing out on is what rest is. Rest, by the simplest definition, is turning from one action to another in the hopes that it would rejuvenate us. So if you had a long day, some of us come home and sit on the couch and turn on the remote or turn on the TV in hopes that that will help us strengthen for the rest of the moment or the rest of the night. We've turned from the job to the TV. And so Paul, after a long period of time, is learning where to find true rest. Because Paul knew that rest doesn't come from a position or a place or the beautiful experience that comes from Christ and Christ alone. He actually tells us, uh, the Philippian church, um, these words about that. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know what it means to be abound in every and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. That I can do all things through Christ, whom strengthens me. See, Paul's belief and foundation was the reality that rest comes from dependency on the Father. Rest comes from when we choose to look towards Him for our strength and nothing else. And when we are able to do that, we can be fully present in the moment. Because when we are overwhelmed by the realities of our world, we will tend to, be, to truly miss out on the things facing around us or going by us. I'm sure I'm not the only person who's been in their car going to a destination and pulling up to my destination and going, how did I get here? Anyone else? Anyone else? Right? Is it because I was being reckless when I was driving? No. It's because I was so focused on my thoughts, my own stuff that I was inward, that even though I was doing the task, I missed everything I was driving by. 
I missed out on the things that were around me because I was too inward. I wasn't present. Paul could have easily been inward here, but he wasn't because he knew to wait on the Lord. And so because Paul was fully dependent on God, he was able to be fully present in the moment. And so as he's walking, as we just read in verse 16, through Athens, he saw things that grieved him and provoked him, right? It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. See, instead of being inward, Paul was resting and had full dependency on the Father who allowed him to able to see what was taking place. And, and when he sees things that break his heart, instead of just sitting on the sidelines or just waiting, he takes a step. He actually does something about it. As we read in verse 17, he says, hey, reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So because Paul was fully dependent on God, he was able to be fully present in the moment. And this allowed him to be able to boldly bring attention to the things that were bothering him. Because he wasn't self-consumed, he was others-focused. He was able to see things that were destroying people. And so he brings attention to them. And so he does what Paul has always done. First, he goes to the synagogue and, and shares to the Jews. What's so fascinating about this is we don't know what happened there. The words, we don't, Luke, the writer of this book, doesn't tell us what took place in the synagogue. His focus is what happens in the marketplace. And, and we don't know this, but maybe the synagogue was so focused on trying to keep their bubble safe from exposure around them that any new information, they just put a wall up towards. That they were too focused on keeping, taking care of themselves to hear anything new or to see what God was trying to do. And so it says that, that Paul then goes to the marketplace, which I think is truly fascinating. Because in my lifetime, I've never seen street corner evangelism work. I've never seen someone stand on a soapbox and say, you need to repent, you need to turn of your ways and, and, and go towards Jesus. And the reason I don't think that works is because oftentimes when you stand on a street corner and you share those things, you're doing it unrelational. You don't have a clue about what's going on in the person's life. And so even though you might be saying the truth, you could be greatly hurting someone because you didn't know their story and you didn't know what was going on in their world and you didn't know what was taking place. And so your message would have either fallen on deaf ears or would have been received as hate. When I was in college, uh, my junior year of college, one of my close friends at the time was on a small plane with a couple of other friends headed to a youth convention, and that small plane crashed. And only one person survived. My friend in that plane 
sacrifice his life for the person who lived. He went back into the burning plane and grabbed this person and pulled her aside. And I remember the day I was driving to the funeral, which was on my college campus. And there were these street corner evangelism people talking about all kinds of different things. And I remember as I had my window open, I heard someone say something along the lines that they deserved it. And everything in me wanted to take my car and just smash them because they had no idea of what took place. They were doing what they perceived took place. They didn't know the story. And so those words felt like hatred. There was not compassion and love and care in what was taking place. They didn't know him or the people in that story. They just allowed outside perspective to influence their words. And to me, that goes so against what Jesus did. God easily could have snapped his finger and fixed the world. But instead, he chose to bring himself here and get to our level and commune with us. He didn't demand that we get into right standing with him. He chose to hear our story and get into our space and in our world and then start to use that to bring the thing that brought us to him. And so the question then becomes is, why did this work? Because this style doesn't seem to be working, but I think actually verse 21 tells us exactly why it worked. Now all the Athens and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. The reason this worked was because this was a part of the culture. See, what Paul actually did here, he was fully dependent on the Father who allowed him to be fully present in the moment, which gave him the ability to observe how the people functioned. And so he got to their level and shared the truth. And in their level, that was standing on a corner and sharing something new. What Paul did here was he was able to get to become culturally relevant, culturally relevant to share the truth. When I was in college, uh, I took a ministry a class called uh, uh, Cross-Culture Ministries. And, and the desire of this class was to share all the different areas of the world and how what I might say here in America would look different in one of these other cultures. And that I need to be observant of the culture so that I can understand how to clearly communicate the gospel, not to water it down, but so that I actually make sure that it's being spoken with boldness and in clarity so that the message would be received. And what I learned most in that was that it takes time and effort and energy to look at the people around you. But if you are dependent on the Father who did that for you, you would want to do the same for others. So that he would call you to do this type of ministry. He would call you to share boldly the truth, but in a way that it was heard, in a way that would actually be heard and seen, you would look at the culture around you and share through what they could hear truth of God. And, and the reality is what we read is it was received, right? 
that they actually heard this because the philosophers here did what? They said, whoa, we hear what you're saying and we want to know more. What we see is that when he was able to become culturally relevant, he was able to be able to affect more people for Christ, or at least be able to communicate that truth of Christ to more because they were able to hear his words. And so they bring him to this uh, Aeropus. Now, Aeropus is the highest court. It overlooked Athens. And in many ways, they said, what you're saying is so shocking and so revealing. We want you to go to court. Where in the court, you will have the ability to defend the message you were saying. And so what seemed like a a very nice invitation, which it was, actually put Paul on the stage in front of the key leaders, the key influencers of Athens. And when he gets there, he shares the truth and the love of God. And so how does he do it? So in verse 22, it says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapus says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So what Paul does first, standing in the midst of all these people, he sees them. He sees them and their heart. Because Paul was able to be fully dependent on God, which allowed him to be fully present in that moment, he was able to see their heart's desire and it was able to speak directly to it. See, as he was walking through this city, he saw that their desire was to be religious. And their desire was to know the one and only or one and true God. So much so they had a a temple that says to the unknown God. And what I think is so profound is there was a little inscription under that temple that said, to the God we don't know to worship, please forgive us. Like, what are they saying? Like, man, like we're trying, we're trying, right? We're trying to make this right. We're trying to figure it out. And and maybe we don't know you yet, but please don't fault us for not knowing you because we are doing our best with the information we have. I don't know why I just thought of this is that um, I don't know how many of you guys have ever seen the movie The Mummy. came out a long time ago in 1999. But there's a scene where this, I think his name is Benny, who's like the side character is... uh, meets the villain for the very first time. And when he does, he like pulls out this necklace that has every like major religion on it. And he starts praying, okay, maybe to the God, the Christian God. Okay, that one didn't work because the guy still is trying to hurt me. And then he starts praying to, to the Buddha. And then eventually he prays to the Jewish God and the, or, and the, the villain goes, oh, the, he was a mummy of Egyptian. He goes, oh, the, the voice of the slaves. Oh, maybe you can work for me. Right? Like, he is, in essence, saying the same thing that the Athens were doing. I don't know which one is right, (laughs) but if I do all of them, 
Maybe one will save me. Maybe one will save me. Maybe if they'll be understanding because they know that I'm trying. And so instead of Paul condemning them and saying, what is wrong with you? How dare you do this? How dare you have these idols? And, and how dare you have all these things? He says, man, I see your heart. I see you. I know that you are trying. So let me try to influence you and tell you, because he continues to say that I, I know that unknown God. Now, before I continue, I just really feel like I need to share this. I'm tired of Christians pointing fingers at people and saying, how dare you to people who are trying. When Jesus walked on this earth, the only people he condemned were the religious leaders for what they were doing. The people who didn't know him, he got to their level. He cared for them. He saw them. He saw that they were hurting. He saw that they were broken and said, let me be around you. Let me comfort you. Let me share you the truth. And today there are too many people who claim Jesus and are pushing people away because they are not getting to their level. The church has not become a safe place for people to say, I want to know Jesus, but I'm afraid to say I'm struggling with porn. I'm afraid to say I have questions about identity. I'm afraid to say I've got gambling addiction or anything else because they're just gonna judge me and kick me out because it is not a safe place. We should not be acting like that. This should be a space, the church at large should be a space where people can come and say, I want to know Jesus and I'm struggling with things. For every person who's in the audience or watching online who is struggling with something right now, but is too afraid to be honest about it because you are afraid that you won't be accepted here, I'm sorry. I am sorry that you have bought into a lie that Jesus wouldn't come to your level that Jesus wouldn't get to you because you are tainted. That is not the truth. Jesus wants to get to your level. He sees you. He's hurting for you. He's broken for you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. If you're in the audience or if you're watching online and you're struggling with something, I would love to hear your story. Let me buy you a cup of coffee and I'll sit down with you. And I'll take time to hear your story. And, and, and I'll take time, hopefully, like others in this church, to say, I see you. I see your heart. I see that you're trying, that you want to know the truth. And let us hopefully point you to that truth. Sorry. <clears throat> Amen. So what does he do? He continues by saying, I, what therefore you worship as a known, I proclaim to you. The God who made everything 
um, who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind and, and all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might, find, might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from us, for in him we live and move and have being, as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So he continues by saying, this unknown God that you're wanting to worship, I know who he is. He is the creator of the heavens and the universe, and he doesn't need us to make him. Because it wasn't us that made him who he is. It's exact opposite. He made us. And even your own poets are trying to pick up on that reality. I think many people have read through this and think that Paul has been piecemealing together some gospel around their circumstances. What he's doing is actually the opposite. He is boldly proclaiming the truth through his observations of what people were doing and what they were trying to accomplish. Because Paul was fully dependent on the Father, he was able to be fully present in Athens, which allowed him to see people and hear what they were speaking and allow those things to point them in the right direction. Allow them to say, your heart longs for the truth. Your heart is hoping for the truth. And I know him. And I know that truth. And I know who that is. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one that your own prophets, your own poets rather, are saying that we are indeed his offspring. And so he continues by, being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or in the imagination of man. The time of ignorance, uh, the, the times of ignorant God overlooked, and now he's commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he had appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I think oftentimes when it comes to the way that we proclaim the truth of Jesus, at least in the most modern times, is that we say, I know the creator, the person you are longing for, his name is Jesus and he loves you. And then we leave it there. And yet that's only a partial reality to the story. It's not that Jesus is supposed to be one of the many different gods that you worship. He has to be the only God that you worship. He has to be the only thing that your focus is. It's only that. And so what we can see here is that because Paul was fully dependent on the Father, he was able to be fully in the present and able to boldly proclaim the truth and not water it down. See, too often people try to water it down because they're afraid of what people are going to think of what they will say. 
Man, what are they going to say if I say that you have to stop focusing your time and energy on your work or on your family or on your retirement, that you need to start putting your focus and your dependency on the Father? So you know what? I'll just say this, because then it'll at least give me the, the moral scratch that I've done something is, hey, Jesus loves you. It's true. He does. But he loves you so much that he wants to free you from the things that you're enslaved to these false gods that you think is helping you, but they're not. I think at least for me, oftentimes when I looked at Athens or, or many of the, 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 these places growing up, I said, man, I'm, we are so much more sophisticated because we don't have idols and temples on every corner. But as I started to look into what their idols and temples were, I'm starting to realize Maybe it's not as, I'm not as sophisticated as I thought. The Athens worshipped Athena, who was the, the, uh, the god of wisdom. The Athens also worshipped Cupid, the god of love. Oh, man, uh, they also worshipped the god of wine, the god of comfort, the god of war-making money. Man, just in the Silicon Valley, I, I know a lot of people who worship at least one, if not all of those. And now I know in my times that I've worshiped the same. And so when, when Paul is standing in the midst of this community who is worshiping all these things, he is willing to get to their level, to get to their space and boldly in the truth that what you're worshiping isn't satisfying your soul. Only Christ can. So repent. Repentance is a military term. It means to do a full 180 and pledge allegiance to something new. So when Paul says repent, he is telling these people to turn away from their allegiance towards these idols and start giving their full allegiance to God. He is calling them to the same thing that he is doing himself, to be fully dependent on God. So how does that message received? Well, it tells us when they heard, in verse 32, that now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him. So what we see is that when Paul was able to stand before the authorities and almost all of Athens, in essence, that there were three ways that people responded to that message. Some mocked him, said, you're a fool. Others said, man, I'm just not sure yet. I think I need a little bit more information. Can we talk about it? And then others who got it and, and took place. And that's the reality of how all people are going to respond. And what I think is so beautiful about that is it shows how much God actually came from our space down, from his space down to our space. Because he didn't demand or force people in their moment when they heard the truth to, to say yes. He allowed them a choice. And the truth is, when we have that choice, there are three responses. 
the response of, yeah, that's a joke. I got more questions. Or yes, I get it. And so Paul, being fully present in the moment, was able to boldly proclaim the truth of God because he was fully present here and now. Over the last few months, uh, I got to lead a, uh, a group of people through this book called Remembering uh, the Forgotten God. It's a book by Francis Chan. And if you have never read it, I'd highly encourage you to do it because it's truly powerful. But there's a question that Francis Chan asks. And the question is, if you were 100% certain that you were in the will of God today, what would he ask you to do? And maybe for some of you, you know exactly what that answer is. Maybe for some of you, that God has been speaking through you through his word, through his spirit, through prayer, through the church, and through your circumstances, that you need to go talk to someone that you haven't talked to in a while, or that you, it's time to move out of mom and dad's house. I think mom and dad are also saying yes. Um, or that it's time for you to look for a new job, or it's time for you to stay in your job. But for others of you, you have no idea. And, and that's okay, because you might not know the answer to the question, but you're never going to know the answer to the question that you aren't asking. The point of, the que- of that question is, what is God's will for me today? Not so much, what is God's will for me tomorrow? See, God's will for all of us is to be fully present in the moment. And the only way that we can do that is being fully dependent on him. Because that's what he tells us. In, Acts, in the first chapter, Acts chapter 1, it tells us that God calls his disciples to be on mission to his nation, to their neighbors, to the world. And he says the only way that you can do that is by being empowered by his spirit. So if we are called to be on mission for people, it comes through our dependency on the Father. So are you dependent on him? Are you more focused on the future than you are about the present? See, God promised us that he will be our comfort and our guide, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He says he's going to be with us here and now. So we need to lean into him so we can do what he was called to do. You know what is so fascinating about this is that when we are fully dependent on him and fully present in the moment, we will actually live out what God wants us to. See, when Paul met Christ on the road, the word that was spoken over to him is that he was going to speak in front of the authorities, in front of kings and queens, the rulers of cities, that never would have happened in Athens. He never would have gotten to the court where his will, where his design was supposed to take place if he wasn't present in the moment to see what was taking place around him. So will you be present today? Will you start to ask the question, God, what is your desire for me now? And will you start to allow him to lead you by opening up your eyes to what's around you. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we come before you and give you thanks 
Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who empowers us. God, I ask and pray and hope that you would continue to open up our eyes, that we would stop being self-focused and start being present, that you would provoke us and our spirit to the things that are taking place in the world around us, and that we would start to boldly proclaim the truth that you are the one and only God. God, we ask that you would continue to be with us. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.